Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biota. I'm Phil Gibson. And I'm Sarah Sanders. This Biota episode is the second part of a two-part series on metagenomics. In part one, we spoke with Dr. Andrew Hasley, a postdoctoral researcher in the biotechnology program at North Carolina State University. In that episode, he described what metagenomics is and how this approach has been revolutionary for different types of studies. For example, metagenomics can be used to study who is present in bacterial communities without having to cultural the microbes beforehand. This is beneficial because many times the bacteria are difficult or impossible to grow in culture. Metagenomics is also revolutionary because it can tell us not only what organisms are present in a community, but also what they're doing. What this means is that metagenomics can not only investigate community structure to tell us who is there, but also tell us about the functional roles of the different species in that community. Exactly. If you'd like to learn more about the basics of what metagenomics is, we recommend listening to part one of this series. In this episode, we are going to continue our conversation with Dr. Hasley. What he's going to talk about next is the process of metagenomic analysis. He explains different sampling and sequencing techniques that are used to collect data and how the data are then analyzed. So let's continue our interview with Dr. Hasley. And so, Drew, um, if you could just tell us what does one need to sort of think about before you begin a metagenomics type of study? That is the right question to ask. What do you do before you start? Um, And it is important. You've got to think about what type of question are you trying to answer? Do you just want to know what organisms live in a given community? It doesn't matter what that community is. It could be um, in a gut. It could be on leaves. It could be in the, the soil detritus in a forest floor. It could be out in the ocean. If you're just looking for community membership and relative abundance, you might be able to do a type of metagenomics that's uh, commonly called metabarcoding, where you only sequence one or two parts of the genome, and you use those as barcode identifiers for different organisms. If you, though, want to be able to go to the next level and know what is the genetic potential of that community. In other words, what genes are there in that system, in some organism or another, that can perform various functions? Um, Or you want to be able to to make conclusions about what what that community might be doing in terms of some kind of uh, community-level metabolism or something like that, then you need to do uh, what's called whole shotgun metagenomics, and you need everything. You need to try and sequence all the genomes that are in there, not just pieces of them that you can then use as ID. Okay, so we have found what we want to sample. We know what information we want to obtain from that sample. How do you get your sample? Oh, and that's the fun part. It really depends on where it's coming from. And this is the coolest part of metagenomics is that there's nothing we can't touch. Um, I've seen, at this point, I've seen metagenomic studies on deep sea vents. I've seen them on human guts and and fecal samples. I've seen them on all these items around your home, even like doorknobs and and, uh, sink handles and stuff like that. You can get it from anywhere. And the the trick is, is that anything you want to sample, you're probably going to have to do 
a little bit of, of homework to figure out what's the best way to get DNA off of that thing or out of that thing or whatever. Um, most commonly, you are going to collect some material, like maybe it's leaf litter, maybe it's soil, maybe it's water. I've even seen one study that concentrated DNA out of air from a zoo. But you're going to get a sample of some something that you want the DNA out of to do the metagenomics with. And then you're going to extract that DNA from that sample. So very rarely are you going out and saying like, I'm just going to go out with my DNA vacuum and suck it up and it'll be nice pure DNA ready to go. That doesn't happen. So there's an extraction step where you have to isolate DNA from some amount of material that you're interested in. And that is actually the first place where you're probably going to lose some information because you're never going to be able to extract all the DNA that's in that uh, sample that you got. So that's how you start. You go out and you extract some DNA and you literally have some nice white stuff uh, sitting in the bottom of a tube. That, that's your starting point. So how do you actually prep that or filter it? So it's going to really depend on the type of sample that you're doing. Um, let me give you an example that I'm very familiar with because I do it in a course here at NC State on environmental DNA where we're just looking at comparing communities in uh, different types of water bodies, uh, one stagnant pond and some running water. So we go out into the field, uh, and I warn the students, like, today's the day that you get your shoes dirty, so bring ones you don't care about because we're going to go out. We are going to collect a liter of water at each site, we're going to dump that in a 50 milliliter syringe. That syringe is going to be plugged into a uh, big, uh, well, I say big, it's about the size of your hand, hockey puck, think hockey puck, uh, 47 millimeter uh, diameter filter that looks like a glorified coffee filter inside a plastic housing. But that glorified coffee filter has 10 nanometer, excuse me, 10 micrometer, 10 micron pores in it. We're going to filter it through, filter it, push the water through that. And after it goes through that, it goes through a 0.22 micron filter to filter it out even more. And both those filters are capturing cells. Um, the first one, bigger eukaryotic things. The second one, more like bacteria and stuff like that. And any particles that are the right size, they either have DNA on them or in them. So we're not getting everything. All the viral DNA is probably getting pushed through for You've got to make decisions about what you're willing to capture. So when you're doing that filtering, are you filtering to get things or collect samples from the filters, or are you wanting to get your sample out of the material that gets pushed all the way through? In my case, I want to extract it off the filters. But you can do it from the water that comes through. That's a little harder to do, extracting from aqueous stuff on its own. Uh is a little bit more challenging. We do some older school things like ethanol precipitation and stuff like that for that. But I like working with the filters because what I can do with those is take them back. I can flash freeze them and then we can cut them up and stick them in tubes with a bunch of little, little tiny beads and shake the daylights out of them at about 25 Hertz for about 10 minutes in a lysis buffer from a kit. And that's the thing is that usually for most of these things, you've got a kit and there's some combination of physical 
beating the cells open and chemical getting the cells open and getting the DNA off of anything that it's attached to. But again, here's another place where you can move some DNA. So if you were interested in eukaryotic cells, you would do your extraction off mm-hmm. of that first filter. And then if you were maybe interested in bacteria, Correct. the second one, and then viral, whatever got pushed on through. In fact, for viral, I go through another order of magnitude down. I go through a 0.02 micron filter. That really hurts by hand. I've done it once, and you're constantly afraid that the filter rig is going to blow up and spray water in your face because you're waiting for the plastic to break. But viral is rough, uh, but I had a colleague who wanted it, so we did some for it. So after you get your, your sample filtered, now comes the sequencing, right? Maybe, because if you're doing a whole genome, if you're doing a whole shotgun metagenomics and you just want the entire genome and you don't need to amplify anything, yeah, now you can go straight to sequencing. But if I'm doing something where either A, I think I might not have enough DNA to do sequencing with, or B, I'm doing the, that metabarcoding that I talked about where I just want one or two sites within the genome, then I do a round of PCR first. So I do polymerase chain reaction to amplify up the stuff that I want, either the, all the gene, genome uh, uh, sequences that are in there or just the ones I'm after. I can target them. And then we go to sequencing. And there's library preparation and all that stuff. But, but yes, you can go straight to sequencing, but sometimes you actually need to amplify first by doing PCR, and that's another place where you can get some bias introduced and maybe lose some information. So this is something I've seen in the, the papers I've read on this. And you mentioned some of this. So shotgun sequencing, that's just seeing what's out there and not being particularly specific. Correct? Yep, that is, that is give me as much of a pile of sequence that you can get me out of this sample. But then these next types of sequencing, you're going in for something very specific and you're amplifying it up and then, mm-hmm. and then going in and looking at those. So here's, here's where the, the papers get a little bit confusing and maybe you can clarify this for me. They keep talking about first generation and next generation and second generation sequencing. What does all that mean? For sure. So I will start by saying that first generation would be an impossibly slow way to do metagenomics. There was some of it done way back when that kind of counts as metagenomics, but that's that's a more of a boutique interest thing. Um, we can talk more about it later if you want. Uh, but for the most part, first generation sequencing is Sanger sequencing that a lot of us learn about either in our first biology course in college or maybe even in high school. And that's the way the human genome was done. But it sequences about a thousand base pairs at a time on, on a good day. And so you're trying to go through the genome and sequence thousand base pair chunks. The human genome is 3.5 gigabases. That's why it took many years to get it done, even though we had a bunch of those sequencers working in parallel. And so there you're getting very accurate sequencing, which is important, but it's, it's one, roughly one uh, kilobase chunk at a time. And uh, there's other things that make it more of a challenge and stuff. So it's the slow, but really accurate way to do it. And that's still useful for a lot of things, not so much for metagenomics. Next-gen sequencing says, essentially, let's miniaturize that and make it highly parallel. And that's where high-throughput sequencing you'll hear, 
next generation sequencing you'll hear or short read sequencing is what you'll also hear. Because now, even though I can only sequence fragments that are about 300 base pairs long, I can do millions of them at once. And that's um, the most, one of the most common ways of doing this is called illumina sequencing. And if you think about the Sanger sequencing taking one big long fragment and it's uh, called sequencing by synthesis, so it is adding base pairs to a complementary strand and it's watching which base pairs it adds based on uh, fluorescent flashes. That's how Sanger sequencing works. That's pretty much also how Illumina works with some important differences. But Illumina does it all in a chip and it can do millions at once. So now instead of one 1,000 base pair sequence coming out at the other end, now I have millions of 300 base pair sequences coming out at the other end. That's next gen. Now, and we can get into this, there's a bunch of challenges and how do I take those 300 base pair sequences and put them all back together into something that's actually meaningful instead of those little tiny chunks. There is a third generation, and some people are calling it third generation. Some people are just calling it long read sequencing that has come in. And this is mainly through Oxford Nanopore and uh, PacBio, Pacific Biotechnologies. And both those technologies, they work very differently, but essentially what they can do is take a big long strand of DNA that hasn't been broken up into smaller pieces and they can sequence it all at once. And they can do, I think, hundreds of thousands of those at once. So it's not actually as many sequences as Illumina per run, but they're much, much longer. So you're actually getting more genomic information out of it. Okay, so after we've got it all sequenced, what does our data look like now? <laughs> it looks like a bucket of HTCs and Gs. Uh, I mean, I'm only being sort of facetious. Um, the sequencer doesn't know anything about your experiment. The sequencer, just, the sequencer just knows what sequences were in there. And it separated them out and told you which ones were in which sample. So you get a bunch of files. And they're called FASTQ files. And it's not really important why they're called that. There's a whole history behind it. But what they are is... Each, each chunk of one of those files is some information about where that sequence was on the flow cell. It's mainly for the computer. The next line is a bunch of A's, T's, C's, or G's in the sequence that it read. And then there's a line under that that has quality scores because it's actually estimating how accurate it thinks it was at calling each and every single one of those bases. And you have files, usually one for each of your samples. This is for next gen. And so in that file is those, you know, three lines of information, one chunk for each of those millions of reads. So these are big files, but they're really just big text files that just have your ACCs and Gs some quality information so that you can decide which ones you want to throw out and which ones you want to keep going forward. And you've got one of those for each of your samples, or in the case of uh, Oxford Nanopore, for instance, you'll actually get a different kind that has um, just a big long version of one of those. And so each file is its own sequence in that case, instead of having millions in it, but that's, that's minor differences. 
So now that you have this big file with all of these data in it, what do you do? Do you feed this into, I, I would assume, a specialized software program that will analyze it? You know, what, what comes next? What comes next is what you've probably seen in papers called pipelines. These are computational pipelines. So it's not one piece of software, it's many. So the first thing you have to do, and I'll stick with next gen because that's where it's easiest to explain it. The first thing you've got to do is decide what of your data you can keep because not all of that sequence data is going to be high quality for various reasons. And you don't want to move forward with high quality stuff because it could be wrong. And that would lead to bad biological conclusions down the road. So there's an old joke in, in bioinformatics that the first step of bioinformatics is throw away half your data. And that's kind of true. Um, you, you usually have some pretty high cutoffs for what you're willing to accept in terms of sequence quality. So you, you run through some quality control. And then for metagenomics, the next thing you try to do is either if you did the amplicon sequencing, if you did the metabarcoding sequencing, then you just go through a set of steps to, to say, because all of your sequence at that point should all be different versions of that one gene that you sequenced. And then you're going to go through the software steps to compare it to databases that we have, and you're going to identify your organisms, and then you're going to do your statistical comparisons. If you're doing shotgun metagenomics, you, the next step after that bucket O sequence is uh, finding all of the genomes in that data. So there are computer algorithms out there that take everything that passed quality control and try to assemble it into individual representative genomes. And it does that by looking at the ends of those couple hundred base pair long chunks, and it finds the chunks that overlap. And then it finds the chunks of the chunks that overlap. And then it finds the chunks of the chunks of the chunks that overlap. And it keeps trying to make bigger and bigger and bigger overlaps until it has what are called contigs. And then it'll do things to try to assemble those. And it will try with all of that work to show you all of the full genomes that are represented by that bucket of sequence you started with. And it's important to know that that's all statistical and computational. It, we try to assume that each one of those genomes represents an individual taxa, a, a species or a particular organism that was in there, but we don't actually know for sure and that's one of the things we have to just kind of reconcile ourselves to. And um, there are various things you can do to check and stuff like that. And then the last thing you do before you start doing statistical analysis that really just depends on what kind of experiments you were doing and what you want to compare, last thing you do is now you've got all those genomes, right? But some of them are going to be almost duplicates of each other because if you do a, a sequencing run, you're not just going to have one organ representative organism for each thing, each type of organism that's in that sample. You're probably going to have several. And so you've got to figure out which genomes are redundant and kind of collapse them down to one. And that will give you at the end of the day, here is my list of genomes that are in here and what their sequence is. And those are called MAGs. Those are called metagenome assembled genomes. Wow. That is a lot. I mean, when I think about where we started, we started talking about this, this is crazy. So the last question I've got for you here then is to take a broader perspective on this and just ask mm -hmm. what has, 
What has metagenomics done for us? I mean, sort of where has this taken us and given us a, a perspective that we didn't have before? What what sort of, I guess you'd say, new, new frontiers has this allowed us to explore as scientists? Sure. So for one thing, it has taught us a ton about the microbes we live with and around and the microbes that live inside us. And so when I say microbes, I'm not just talking about bacteria. I'm talking about fungi. I'm talking about unicellular plants. I'm talking about eukaryotes that don't really classify well, and we call them protists. I'm talking about archaea. All these microorganisms that we can't see, and a lot of them we can't even culture. We can't bring them into a lab and grow them because we don't know what environment they need. And, I mean, there are some of these things that live on acid, you know. And so metagenomics has let us go out and discover what that biodiversity is that is in our homes, in our hospitals, and in the environment that, that we explore. And not only has it told us about the biodiversity that's there, it's telling us functionally what that biodiversity does all day and what, what functions are happening. And that starts to give us a hint at what's a good microbial community for your gut, what's a lousy one. If I have a healthy uh, lake system, what does the microbiome of that look like versus one that's sick or one that's eutrophic? Uh, and, and it's let us explore that in ways that we literally couldn't before because we couldn't culture any of those things. The other thing it's done is let us just learn about biodiversity in general because you can sequence things that aren't microbes in metagenomics because everybody sloughs DNA, right? And so it helps us do things like identify invasive species uh, where they're at. So... Um, you can do metagenomics to find carp in a river system. You can do it to find the other fishes that might be facilitating the carp in that system or the plants that might be associated with them. You can find these new correlations that you might not have noticed before. And so it's allowing us to explore things that either we can't get into the lab or that we can't physically get our hands on out in the field or see or trust that we'll notice um, by traditional remote methods. So metagenomics isn't going to replace anything. And I think that's really important for people to understand. What it's doing is expanding the horizon of, of what we can detect and figure out what it does in the world around us. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking time for this interview today. It's great to hear what you've uh, shared with us, and I think this will give everyone a much better perspective on what metagenomics is, how it's done, and how it can be applied and, and is being applied to all sorts of questions that are coming up now. Yeah, I'm happy to do it, and I really hope this was helpful for people. Um, yeah, and, and happy to talk anytime. All right, well, thank you very much, and you have a great day. Thanks. You all do the same. That concludes part two of our interview with Dr. Andrew Hasley. As he explained, metagenomics involves sampling, sequencing, sequence assembling, and other steps necessary for metagenomic analyses. Again, I'll remind you of two papers that can be a good place to start learning about this technique.
First, a primer on metagenomics by Woolley, Godzik, and Friedberg. It was published in 2010 in the journal PLOS Computational Biology. And second, Next Generation Metagenomics, Methodological Challenges and Opportunities by Laudadio, Fulci, Stranati, and Karasimi, and it was published in Omics, a journal of integrative biology in 2019. Now that we've introduced the basics of metagenomics, the next few episodes will include discussions with researchers who use metagenomics in studies ranging from small animal conservation to monitoring wastewater for disease. Before we go, we want to once again thank Dr. Hasley for taking the time to chat with us and answer our questions. And I want to thank my co-host, Sarah Sanders, for joining me in these episodes. I'm Phil Gibson, and until next time, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.